Amen, brothers and sisters. It is a great thing to be held fast in the hands of our marvelous and wonderful God. Let us now uh, go to him in prayer. Uh, Please be seated as I pray. Please bow with me. God, as we've sung, you will hold us fast. And Lord, because you hold us fast, you get to tell us what we ought to do. Because of your salvation that you've so wondrously wrought in all of us, Lord, you tell each one of us how we can best glorify and how we can best honor you. And Lord, we are so thankful that one of the ways that you tell us that we can honor and glorify you is by joining and covenanting together as a committed people to the praise and glory of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that this church, South Canyon Baptist Church, would be a shining reflection of who you are as the holding fast God, one that proclaims who Jesus is, what he's done, and how others might ultimately come to know him in faith. So Lord, we pray for ourselves that you would make that true, that we would be a shining reflection of who you are. Lord, we're reminded by your word in scripture that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made manifest to the world. So Lord, we pray that for South Canyon, this would be true. By the way that we conduct our services, by the way that we love one another, by the way that we do outreach, by Everything that we do, Lord, we pray that the manifold wisdom of who you are, not of who we are, but of who you are, would be known by our working together this great salvation that you've placed in us. Father, help us to display your wisdom accurately. Lord, as we know, there are so many things in the world that clamor and claim to be truth, that clamor and claim to be wise. But Lord, in the sight of who you are, in the sight of what you've done, It is foolish. So, Father, we pray that we would know and trust in your word in such a way that your wisdom would be seen in us and how we live and how we love together. Lord, we pray not just for ourselves that these things that I just prayed would be true, but ultimately they would be true in other churches in our area, that the wisdom of who you are would be seen in other churches of like mind and like faith. And so this morning, as we do from time to time, we pray for those other churches here in our community. Father, I want to pray this morning, we want to pray this morning for our brothers and sisters at Fountain Springs Church. Father, we thank you for the amazing witness that they have here in the community. And Father, just for the way that you are working in so many people's lives, a way for them to come to know who Jesus Christ is. Father, this morning we pray for their pastor, David Kennan, that he would preach the word boldly, that he would preach it accurately, that he would preach it in a way that displays who Jesus is and what he has done in their lives. And Father, we ask that you might use Fountain Springs Church to bring many to salvation who may not know you. Lord, across their campuses, we pray that if there is somebody that does not know you this morning, that through the preaching of your word this morning, that they would come to know who Jesus Christ is and that their faith could begin as they've heard the word preached. Father, we thank you for Fountain Springs Church and just ask that you would bless their ministry here in Rapid City. Father, again, as we think about other partners in the gospel, has been, has been prayed by our sister Rachel. Father, we also bring up those who we are, Lord willing, supporting in our harvest offering this morning. Father, we thank you that we are able to dedicate and to set aside a time where funds can go specifically to those people and to those organizations that we specifically believe have a gospel impact within the communities and within the world. And so, Lord, we pray first for the one that's in our neighborhood, for the Black Hills Pregnancy Center. Father, we thank you and we rejoice at the great work that they're doing of coming alongside of women to help them know the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ and how that affects them being mothers and fathers. Father, we pray that as a result of their ministry that many children, ultimately we come to know who Jesus Christ is because of the love that the Black Hills Pregnancy Center has shown to those women and to those fathers that come there. Father, we thank you that you have allowed for us to support them, not just in prayer, but financially. And so God, we ask that we would be helpful to them in finances, that whatever they need through this offering today that they would have. 
Father, we pray not just for those with, in our neighborhood, but also those across the world. And, and Father, we pray specifically for our partners at Reaching and Teaching International Ministry, and specifically we pray for the administration team. Father, we realize that there is a lot of work that they do that goes behind the scenes that does not go commended or does not go honored. But Father, we thank you for them, for the relentless work that they do to make sure that the gospel is known throughout the world, to make sure that there are biblical churches across the world. So Father, we pray for those receptionists. We pray for those communication directors. We pray for those secretaries that ultimately, God, you would use them to further your kingdom. And Father, we pray as we partner with them this morning that they might be able to use the monetary support that we give them to help them live, to help them further this message that we've been given as well. God, thank you for these missions and these organizations and these partners that we have in the gospel. And Father, we pray that they would be honored and that they would be commended for the great work that they're doing. Father, thank you for their partnership with this local church. And we pray, Lord, that there would be many more years of fruitful labor and fruitful partnership in the future. God, as we turn now again back to ourselves, we confess and realize that we need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to help us hear and to understand your word. I need your Holy Spirit to communicate what is in your word. So, Father, we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would strengthen us that have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, that we would be keenly aware of his presence and that we'd be keenly aware of how he's working in us, that we would come to understand and to know the scripture more and more. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us see Jesus, that we would see him as our risen and reigning king that tells us, that commands us, that urges us to live in a manner that ultimately points people to him. Father, we're thankful that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is our ministry as well, which is to point people to Jesus. So, Father, help us this morning, even as the word is preached, to to make that true, to point our eyes to Jesus. Father, not only that, help us to see how Jesus lived and help us as a church to live how Jesus lived. We need the Holy Spirit's involvement. We need the Holy Spirit's chastisement. We need the Holy Spirit's conviction to help us do that. Father, would it be a true statement of this church that the Holy Spirit caused them to live in a manner that was Christ-like? And finally, Father, we pray that you would, through the Holy Spirit, awaken those who are in darkness, that you would open their blind eyes to see the marvelous grace that is given to us in Christ Jesus, and that ultimately he would illuminate them to understand their need for a Savior, that he would convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment and that they could know that they could place their whole faith in Jesus and repent of their sins. Father, we ask that you would do this. We pray that Jesus would be seen and that your Holy Spirit would be active this morning as we preach your word. God, help us this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. It's good to preach God's word with you. And we are going to be in the book of Philippians this morning, which I believe is going to be found on page 981. See, I didn't even need to reference the screen. Page 981, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to finish out the chapter of Philippians this morning. As you're turning there, I want to ask you, who would you consider to be the fittest person on the planet? Anybody have an answer for that, who the fittest person on the planet is? I heard a couple of mumbles. If, if you're into physical fitness at all, people who do CrossFit, they would consider Matt Fraser to be the fittest person on the planet. And if you have no idea what CrossFit is, that's okay. Let me just quickly explain it to you. CrossFit is a form of high-intensity interval training. CrossFit is a strength and conditioning workout that is made up of functional movement performed at a high-intensity level. These movements, these functional movements, are actions that you perform in your day-to-day life, like squatting, pulling, pushing, etc. Functional movements, apparently. But many of these CrossFit workouts, they feature variations of squats, of pull-ups, and weightlifting that last for predetermined amounts of time to help build muscles. And, and as I've seen people do CrossFit, it involves a lot of yelling and grunting as well. Laura and I, we, we have some friends that are really into this lifestyle. And there's a particular friend that 
they need to work out literally every single day um, because they're just so enraptured by this program. And we didn't know how big of a deal that CrossFit is and, and how invasive it is in people's lives. I mean, there are competitions literally throughout the United States, throughout the world, that are trying to answer this question that I posed at the beginning. Who is the fittest person on the planet? And as of right now, there is no one better than five-time-in-a-row champion Matt Fraser. But Matt didn't get there overnight. I want to tell you a little bit about his workout schedule. His workout schedule involves at least two workout sessions of different kinds that last three hours each. There's also his cardio regimen that he tacks on to the, his evening three-hour workout session in the evening. He takes it easy on Saturdays by, by biking for three hours and, and doing a light recovery workout as well. He does rest on Sunday, but honestly, who knows what that means for somebody like that that works out six hours a day. I could go into detail about his specific, in, his specific intake of food and, and how regimented that is and, and his specific reasoning and justification for why he has to sleep at least 10 hours every night. But you'll just have to take my word for it and his results of winning five times in a row a competition that consists of nearly 200,000 participants. The results speak for themselves. Earlier in 2020, Matt retired from competing at the games, and he was at the very top of his sport. There was nobody that was even touching what he was doing in CrossFit. And this is what he said when he explained his retirement. He said, ever since the end of the 2015 season, when I decided to stop messing around and commit myself fully to the sport, CrossFit has been my world. And for that same reason, this is also an easy decision. Except for a few weeks in August, when I allow myself a break, my focus has been relentless. I've passed up vacations, bachelor parties, and more dates with Sammy, my wife, than I can count, all so I wouldn't miss a single training session or a full night of sleep. For eight years, every day has been roughly the same. Wake up earlier than I'd like, sell my soul to the assault bike and the swimming intervals and the 40-minute AMRAMPs, eat, sleep, repeat for eight years. He goes on to say, the hard work paid off, but now... I'm ready to make decisions based on how they affect my family, friends, health, and happiness, not only my performance. I think if there's one lesson that we can learn from Matt Fraser and from this story is that hard work pays off. Hard work pays off. I mean, the results speak for themselves. He's a five-time champion. And as we see, our hard work will be seen as we hit the rubber on the road. And in our passage this morning, we're going to find that the same can be true of the Christian. That hard work pays off. But ultimately, what we're going to see is that it's God who actually does a lot of the work. So let us now read in Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Please follow along with me as we read God's word. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, 
lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There's a lot going on in this passage, so let's just get right into it. I think the main idea of this passage is this. Because God works in us, our faith is displayed outwardly in the world and in the church. I realize that's a long main idea, but it's a long passage, so I'll say it again. Because God works in us, our faith is displayed outwardly in the world and in the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through that main idea through two different points. And I'll say it one more time for my note takers. Because God works in us, our faith is displayed outwardly in the world and in the church. But we're going to break that down into two different points. God works inwardly, point number one. And then point number two, we display outwardly. So let's go ahead and start with our first point. God works inwardly, which we find in verses 12 through 13. As we enter into this passage, we need to remember that Paul just exhorted the church to have the mind of Jesus. And as Pastor Joel preached last, a, lot, a couple of weeks ago, um, this mind of Jesus that they ought to have, it ultimately culminates in the pattern of following Christ through his humility, of taking on human flesh. This is what Christ did. He took on this human flesh in service and in love for others. And now he ultimately commends this church in Philippi to have that mindset, to have this mindset where all selfish gain and all vain conceit, it disappears at the foot of the cross as we consider who Christ is. And now in our passage this morning, he talks about how does this practically outwork itself in the life of the church? How does this look? How do we have the mind of Christ together as a body? And the first thing he commends to them, to the church in Philippi, is that they need to be obedient and working out their salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to say that again. They need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Truthfully, this, this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's giving Christians a lot of trouble for whatever reason. But I think as we try to seek to interpret and to understand what this verse means, whenever we are trying to do that, what we need to do first to understand verse 12 is to understand verse 13. You see, verse 12, as we read that clause, it's dependent on verse 13. This call to work out your own salvation is ultimately grounded in verse 13, that God has worked and is continuing to work in the life of the believer. Therefore, the call to obedience to the church in Philippi has its foundation in the grace that has been given to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now this grace that has been given to them in Jesus Christ that has already been inwardly worked in them is now being commended, being exhorted, being told this needs to work outwardly. This needs to display itself. And it ultimately needs to produce obedience. It needs to result in a working out with fear and trembling. Paul is not saying in verse 12 that somehow the obedience of the church in Philippi is what will ultimately produce salvation. That's not what he's saying at all. I want to say that again. Their obedience is not ultimately what will produce salvation. Salvation's already been produced. Rather, what we find is that God has willed in every Christian's life to save them for his pleasure, not because of their works, being obedient to be saved, but to display his work in them outwardly, being obedient because they are saved. I want to say, I want to say that carefully one more time. God has willed in every Christian's life to save them for his pleasure, not because of their works, being obedient to be saved, but to display his work in them outwardly, being obedient because they are saved. As Pastor Brent used to say, we are not saved because of good works, but for good works. And as verse 13 states, God is the one who works so wondrously, so marvelously in you, so that your will and your work will be seen by a manner of living that is described here with fear and trembling, with obedience. As one commentator, I think, so eloquently puts it, let me just read this real quickly for you. 
He says, the context makes it clear that this is not a soteriological, that's a big word, a salvific, a saving text per se. It's not dealing with people getting saved or, or saved people persevering. Rather, this is an ethical text dealing with how saved people live out their salvation in the context of the believing community and in the world. What Paul is referring to, therefore, is the present outworking of their eschatological or ultimate final salvation with the believing community in Philippi. At issue is obedience, pure and simple, which in this case is defined as their working or carrying out in their corporate life the salvation that God has graciously given them. This is an ethical text talking about how should Christians live. For those that have already been shown Christ, how should they live? So this idea of working out, carrying out, or fleshing out their own salvation is what many theologians have called sanctification. Fancy word, sanctification. And one systematic theologian that we love here at South Canyon, Wayne Grudem, he defines sanctification as this, as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. This is what sanctification is, a working of both God and man, working in us to be less sinful and to be more like Christ. This, for the Christian, is the reality that, yes, we are saved That's a past reality. This has happened. And we are being saved. A present reality, which is happening to us currently. And that we will be saved. A future reality that will ultimately come and culminate in Jesus coming for his people. As I was studying this passage, I I thought to mind of a, a passage that I had in a different Bible study. And this is what I think the Apostle John was getting at in 1 John verses 2 and 3. He, he says this, and I want you to kind of follow along with the logic as I kind of tried to parallel what Paul's saying here with what John's saying. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. This is a, the past reality, right? We are God's children. Something has happened to make that true. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the future reality that all believers are looking for in our sanctification. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the commendation, the exhortation is that they purify themselves just as Christ is pure. That's the present reality. They are to do these things because of what has happened, what's going on currently, and what will ultimately culminate in Christ coming back. I've I've heard it put like this. Our sanctification is like a sailboat. There's a destination that all Christians are on that is sure. They are going to get there no matter what. But the sailing on a sailboat, it can't be just letting the wind take you. It can't just be only God's work taking you there. Even though he could get you there, trust me, that's the whole point of perseverance of the saints. But sanctification is actually both the sails and the wind working together to get to that final destination. It's not just a simple drifting along. It's a participation in the work that God has already begun in the life of the believer. So it is for the Christian. God has worked in us to save us, and now that work that he's done in us outwardly displays itself as we work to become more like Christ. There's two things I I, I very briefly want us to see before we move on, which is, who is this command for? And then what's the attitude that we're supposed to approach this imperative with? So let's first answer that question. Who's this exhortation to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Who is this ultimately for? This may seem like an obvious fact, but this exhortation that Paul gives to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is for Christians. I I know that's a mind-blowing fact, but that's true. This text is written specifically for Christians. But upon further inspection, what Paul is writing here is not a hope that he has for individual Christians. This isn't just for only Tanner. This isn't only for Laura. This is a hope. This is an idea of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling and obeying God. This is a call to the church. This is a call to all of us together corporately to do this. And so indeed are the rest of the instructions that we find within the rest of this passage. 
All the exhortation that he gives are in the second person plural. Y'all do this. We are to obey God in every circumstance. We, collectively, together, are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to be obedient here, now, us, together. We are supposed to be doing this. We get to do this. God doesn't just laser focus in on a single person to work out their salvation so that they can be worked out and that they can be the only one displaying this. No, he works in every single one of us who claim that Jesus is the Savior of our life. And within this specific body, all those who are members who have covenanted and joined with us, he is working this great salvation out in us together as a body. He works in us so that collectively we might strive together to work out the salvation that he so wondrously gives us. Christian, I wonder if at times you or or me or we, I wonder if we isolate rather than lean into the body of Christ whenever we have a faith issue. I I wonder how many of us as red-blooded Americans believe that if I need to work on something in my faith, I'm going to do that by myself. I wonder how pervasive that thought is here within this local body. Brothers and sisters, a text like this, it it completely opposes that notion or idea that faith is an individual matter. It is an individual matter because ultimately, yes, you do have to answer. You have to be the one that makes the decision of, will I be obedient to Christ? Will I go to him in faith? That is the individual part. But this idea of working out that faith, that's meant to be done corporately, together, in a body. We're meant to do this together. We work out our faith in the arena of life together to become Christ-like together. As I was trying to think of an illustration for what this looks like, the only thing I could think of is having to work out with a brother that's moved to West Virginia now. And I really like working out on my own. It's kind of my me time. I like having that individualized time to where I can just kind of focus on what I want to focus on, and and nobody's really going to push me to, to lift any more weight. But... When I asked this one brother to work out with me, you know what he did? He had the audacity to make me add more weight to my squats. He had the audacity to make me run. Like, I don't do that when I go to the gym. But this is, the, I think, what Paul's getting at here. I was able to get stronger with that brother because he was pushing me and making me strive to get better. And that's what it's meant to be here in the local church. We work out this faith together. Because it's better whenever we do it together. Friends, this is why we all can rejoice when we see our brothers and sisters make their faith public in baptism here in a couple of weeks. This is why we all can be in prayer when that one member tells us how we can be praying for that friend, for that coworker, for that family member that they so badly want to know Christ. Friends, this is why we all can weep together in hope and in sorrow when one of our beloved friends, one of our beloved members loses a spouse after many years of joyous marriage. We all get to do this together. The faith that God so marvelously works out in each of us individually or works in us individually, we get to work out together. It's done better together, and that's a beautiful thing. The second thing I want us to, to notice or to find is, is what is the attitude that's supposed to be approaching? What's the attitude that's supposed to be revealing as we work out this salvation together? And what I want us to see is as we work out our salvation, Paul says that together we ought to, we ought to do this. We ought to meta fabu kai tramu. We ought to do this with fear and trembling. We ought to work out our salvation with a particular kind of fear and trembling. And Paul desires that the church be struck with such a a reverential awe and a complete understanding of who God is that their motivation would be to remember who they are working out their faith for. He wants them to remember that. Who am I to answer to as I'm working out my salvation? There's a focus of mind in this church, not just to please God, 
but also a divine responsibility to do what he has called them to do. They do that all together. This ultimately means caring and pursuing about things that God cares about. It meant being interested in, in working toward things that God would be interested in, in working toward. That's what we are meant to do whenever we are called to work out the salvation with fear and trembling. We're to do this with a particular kind of focus, a particular kind of understanding of who we're doing that for in the mind that God has as well. There's a direction, a focus to please God because it's not only God, because it's God ultimately who has worked out a salvation in all of us. None of us can say, hey, I did this on my own, so therefore my focus, my attention in working out my salvation is going to be different from everybody else. We are on a level playing field now because God has worked a salvation in all those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the focus. We praise and we honor and obey God with fear and trembling. He's the one that's worked it out in us, and that's who it's directed toward. So for my friends here who may not call themselves Christians, I want, I want to ask you a question. Who or what do you work for? Who or what do you work for? As we're going to see here in a moment, much of what ends up being worked out of us is a display of what's ultimately been worked in us. As you look back on the last week, what would you say you're working for? Would you say that you're working for your boss? Would you say that you're working for yourself, for your own will, for your own pleasure? Friends, as we've discussed, there's a God that believes all of our devotion and all of our praise ought to be directed toward him with fear and trembling. And the reason he does this is because he's designed, he's purposed us for, not ourselves, but for himself. Friend, living for yourself, for your own pleasure, it's an outright rebellion in the image that he's created you in. It's sin. Your best life now is not ultimately for your own pleasure, for your own will, but for God's. And our God, as Paul says here, it's, it's not a person to be nonchalant toward. I mean, we have to remember, he's telling Christians that we need to work out this fear and salvation with fear and trembling. He's telling Christians this. Can you imagine what he'd be telling you? If we as Christians are supposed to be doing this with fear and trembling, there's a different kind of fear and trembling that I think he would want to exhort you to. If you and I were to be in his presence outside of the blood of Christ covering us, we rightly would be responding with a terrified kind of fear, the one that usually comes to mind whenever we think about fear and trembling. But friend, this same God that we would naturally cower to in fear, he came to us, gentle and lowly, meek of heart. He came to us in the person of Jesus so that we might be able to approach him and be able to come to him with the proper fear and trembling that Paul is talking about here. It's a fear and trembling that's rooted in knowing that you are forgiven by God and that because you're forgiven for your sin, you can work out the salvation that he's given you. Friend, if you don't know what it's like to have this kind of fear and trembling that we're talking about this morning, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the elders on your way out. And we'd love to talk to you about what it might look like for God to be working in you so that you could be working for him. Come talk to us after the service. We've gone at links to talk about God working in us. So let us now turn and see what it looks like for us in our second point. We display outwardly. We display outwardly. And I think we find this kind of big chunk of, of what we do once God works in us. What does that look like outwardly in verses 14 through 30? I think as the text breaks down in the next 17 verses, there are really two major areas or two categories that our faith is displayed outwardly. There's two arenas, if you will, that our faith gets to be exercised in. And the first area that we display our faith outwardly is in the world. And I think we find that in verses 14 through 18, in the world. So this is the context or the arena that is to be seen by the watching world by those who are not Christian, by those who are not in the church. If, if the world was to hold up a magnifying glass to the church and to look at it, to look at it specifically, what would they find? And this is what Paul is trying to answer. What would they find if they further inspected us? 
And in these verses, I think there are, are three characteristics that I see as indicators of this outward display of the grace that has been worked in us in Christ. So three characteristics that the world ought to see as our faith is displayed outwardly. And I think the first thing that we see displayed is what can be summarized as a shining light. A shining light. And I wanted to notice first that Paul describes a shining light by what it's not. He describes it as a body of believers that does all things not by grumbling or disputing. That's not a characteristic of what a shining light is. It's, it's without grumbling or without disputing. A church that is completely and otherworldly unified. It's a church that, as he stated earlier, and as Joel preached about a couple weeks ago, it's a church that's of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you can tell, Paul wants that church to be of one mind. And, and he also says, this church does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility it counts others as more significant than themselves. This shining light is one that aims to serve, that aims to love others. And against the backdrop of the crooked and twisted generation that it lives among, and this is true for us as well, this shining light will be bright. It will be gleaming against the backdrop of the crooked and twisted generation that it finds itself in. And, and why is that? Why, why is that that Paul says? Why is it that they can shine so brightly? Is it because they're so unified and so amazing? No, no. He, he says, you do this because you're children of God. Children of God stand out amongst the crooked and dark generation that it lives among. And it does that by being unified, by being selfish, or selfless, not selfish. Don't know what word that was. So, for us, a good gauging question that we ought to ask if we are meant to be this shining bright church, a good gauging question then is, if people were to look at our church, to look at our gathering, to look at our services, to look at our life groups, to look at all these different things that we do, does it look any different than any other worldly club or organization? Does what we do in our family meetings, in our, in our business meetings, in our elder meetings, does it look any different than what the world does? Friends, I hope and I pray that as we gather here together, not just in this service, but throughout the week and, and through the different gatherings that we have, I pray that we would be different, that we would shine brightly, that there'd be a, a particular unity, a, a particular charity, a particular love that manifests whenever we gather together. Because ultimately, that is what shines the light of God in us. That's what communicates we are children of God. I think the second way that we display outwardly the work has worked in us is by holding fast, by holding fast. And as we sang earlier, ultimately we find out there's nothing about us that makes us hold fast, but everything that God does that makes us hold fast. But this church that I think Paul is describing here, one that holds fast is a church that holds to and teaches the word of life. It holds to Jesus and teaches his words in scripture, and it does not falter when it's pressed against. We have to remember the Philippian church is going through the beginning stages of potential persecution. And he's saying, hold fast to this word of life. Hold fast to Christ. This church that holds fast, it's a church that holds to its confession of who God is and what he's done. Who Jesus is and what he's done and who the Holy Spirit is and what he's done. And it holds to all of that, no matter what, no matter the circumstance. It's a church that never moves in terms of doctrine, how that ultimately applies to its life. There's a sameness to this kind of church that he's talking about, this holding fast church, that from the time that it was birthed to the time that Christ returns, its foundation will always be the same. Jesus will always be the foundation of every true church that lasts to the very end. It confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, from day one to day end. This is a church that holds fast. Paul says that this kind of church is one that he would be proud to know that he did not labor in vain for in the day of Christ. I think it kind of gives us a peek of what heaven maybe will be like. Whenever Christ returns, we get to see all those that we labored for. 
And, and it's interesting, I think, that Paul says a church that he would be proud of is one that holds fast to Jesus, especially one that holds fast in persecution. What he has taught them from the very beginning is what they hold on to, to the very end. The final way that we see this faith displayed in the world is by a strange joy. A strange joy. Read verses 17 and 18 with me very quickly. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with with me. What in the world? What kind of strange people are called to rejoice if their leader, the one who planted their church, dies for the very news and the very gospel that they believe in? What kind of people do that? Well, as we see here in our text, it's the people that God has worked inwardly in. It's the church of Jesus. Remember what Paul said in chapter 1? Josh Brown talked about this. He said, chapter 1, Paul says this. He's talking about the unity and joy that the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi, ought to have as people accuse them and begin to persecute them. This is a clear sign to those opponents of their destruction. But of you, it's a clear sign of your salvation and that from God. Friend, a church that has seen the work of God inwardly in it ultimately displays a strange joy because this church welcomes trials and sufferings. It rejoices in those sufferings and trials because we know, just as Paul does here, that this kind of strange joy will give evidence to what has been working on inside of us. It tells the world that we belong to God. How we respond to those trials tells us who we belong to. And for Paul, it's a strange type of joy. But as we know, there's another context into which we display outwardly what God has worked so wonderfully in us. And this is in the church. In the church. This is the other arena, the other major category that we see this worked out in. And we, I think we find this in verses 19 through 30. So in these verses, Paul gives us two flesh and blood examples for the church in Philippi of what he's been getting at since the beginning of chapter 2. The exhortation is to have the mind of Christ. And now he's going to illustrate by two different individuals, people that have the mind of Christ. Two people that display the humility of Jesus and the grace that has been given to them in God because of their salvation. And I think Paul's really strategic as he gives these two examples. As you're going to find one of them, he's more like a pastor, more like an elder, and the other one's just a member, a member of the church, a participant of that local church. And the first person we see Paul extol, who's kind of taking on this pastor slash elder category, is Timothy. And I think what we see displayed in Timothy, and ultimately what we ought to see in ourselves, is a godly concern for one another. Again, as we think about this faith displaying itself outwardly, particularly in the church, what we see in Timothy is a godly concern for one another. Paul says, out of anyone that he knows, there is no one that is more godly than Timothy in his concern for other Christians. Paul says that not just for the church in Philippi, but for himself, there's a particular type of concern that Paul, excuse me, that Timothy has for the people in the church. And and Timothy has expressed this concern so much to Paul about the church in Philippi that he wants Paul to let him go to them so that he can get a report and bring it back to Paul. He wants to tell Paul about how they're doing. And this decision that Paul's having to wrestle with of whether or not he should let Timothy go, it wouldn't have been an easy decision for Paul. Timothy cared and had glad and godly concern for Paul because he was under house arrest. And Timothy seemed at some point in his ministry the only one that was there with him. And not only that, as what was talked about in chapter 1, there are people in this prison that Paul is at that are preaching Christ from a very weird and selfish place. But Timothy, he preaches Christ just because he wants Christ to be known. Timothy's different. Now, this godly concern, the way that Timothy displays outwardly what God has done inside of him, it's not necessarily limited just to people like Timothy, like pastors and elders. I think it should be true of the whole church that we should have a godly concern for one another. 
But I do think that as Paul is writing and making this example of Timothy to the church in Philippi, I think he's wanting to make sure that the leaders of the church in Philippi have a godly concern for those that belong to them. So for my fellow brothers who serve as elders here at this church, I hope that this would be an exhortation to us, that there is a specific kind of concern that we have for those that reside in membership here at South Canyon Baptist Church. I pray that we would have an outward display of godly concern for the 200 plus members that are here. I pray that we wouldn't just hone in on a specific group of people, that we wouldn't show favoritism, but ultimately that we would care about every single person that God has entrusted to us as shepherds of this flock. I pray that we would go on their behalf often and that we would seek their welfare in everything. As we make decisions and as we meet, brothers, this is what we're called to, to have a concern not for ourselves, but for them. Now that's a weighty and a, and a really big exhortation to have, to have a godly concern for all people within the church, especially for pastors. But here's the deal, members. If you think you're off the hook, Paul wants to introduce you to someone, and his name is Epaphroditus. And in Epaphroditus, we see a godly affection for one another. A godly affection for one another. Let's read about Epaphroditus really quickly in verses 25 through 30. Read along with me. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister in my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was a rock star. He, he, he was an exemplary member of this church in Philippi. I mean, think about it. The dude almost died from illness to make sure that the letter to the Philippians, or excuse me, from the Philippians to Paul, which we don't have, he almost died trying to just to deliver this letter to Paul. And not only did he die, almost, excuse me, almost die from illness. He didn't die. Not only did he almost die from illness, but he became so worried about the church in Philippi when they heard that he was ill. Something seems backward. I'm not like a math scholar or a logic scholar by any means, but something seems backwards. Like if I get ill, I want people to be concerned with me, not the other way around. But for Epaphroditus, he was concerned that this church in Philippi heard that he was ill. And as Paul tells us, Epaphroditus, he gave it all. He, he says that he was willing to risk his own life just to make sure that a letter and maybe some other essential items given to Paul in his time of need as he was in prison. And friends, we need to recognize he was just a normal member of the church pouring himself out in love and in service for that body in Philippi. Friends, this is the only time other than the end of the book of Philippians that we ever see Epaphroditus get mentioned. Friend, can you imagine if people were to write a story about you if you were mentioned like Epaphroditus? What a sweet thing that would be. Wouldn't it be amazing to be known for that kind of affection, that kind of love that's displayed outwardly because of what God's worked inwardly in you, like Epaphroditus? As Paul says, we ought to commend, we ought to honor, we ought to applaud these members, these everyday, normal, working hard members of the church. We ought to applaud and honor such men. And so, I want to do that right now. I want to honor some people within this church that I think show godly affection to us as a body. I'm not going to make them stand up or anything like that, but I think it's something that we need to be aware of, we need to be conscious of. So I want to, I want to honor Rich Sowers. Rich, I want to thank you, brother, for making sure that the doors get locked and unlocked every service. And thank you for making sure that ushers have bulletins to make sure that we can follow along with my sermons. Some of them are in there right now, but I want to thank our nursery and our children's church volunteers and coordinators for watching and teaching our little ones about who Jesus is and about why they can put their trust in him. And I want to thank you as well 
for letting their parents have a little bit of respite so that they can sit under the preaching of God's word. I want to thank Alan Newcomb for making sure we have pins and connect cards every single week in our church. Thank you, brother. Rick, I want to thank you, brother. Where are you? I saw you right there. Rick, I want to thank you, brother, for making sure that we come into a clean building every single week and that all the bathrooms and everything else is stocked. I want to thank Barb Geidel for making sure that we get donut and coffee time every single week without fail. I want to thank Ken and Karen Martin for making this place such a welcoming place. I want to thank Angie Schaefer for showing up every single week to youth just to make sure that these students know Jesus. And that's after spending a whole day in school with students. She still comes back and and serves with me in the youth group. I want to thank Missy with Sean. I want to thank her, even though she's not in here, typical, for holding the whole place together, literally every single day. She makes sure that this church operates. And she also deals with me and Joel during the week. And she relentlessly connects with those of you that are in this church so that we can know how to serve one another. Friends, we should honor and applaud these people that do so many different things without us knowing it. And I know that I'm missing many, and there are certainly more that can be committed, but I want you to think about the level of affection that's shown to us week after week that we probably just take for granted. Brothers and sisters, this kind of affection that we see in the church that I just brought up, this is what Jesus prayed for. That people would know that we are followers of Jesus Christ by how we love one another. Friends, what a great affection that he's so worked in us that we can show it to others. May we be a church of great affection here at South Canyon. This affection and this concern, I wish I could say it's because of some power in us that makes us just awesome and eager to love and to be concerned with everybody, but that's not the case. This is the beauty of it all. It's not of us. This display of faith, this display of working out love and concern, it ultimately doesn't come from us. It's because God has so wondrously worked in all of us, in this church, in South Canyon Baptist Church, a salvation that we all get to work together with, with fear and trembling. It's because of God that we can display that love and concern that Paul exhorts us as a church to now. It's not because of us. It's because of Jesus. And that, my friends, deserves all of our praise and all of the glory. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that for whatever reason, you've decided to use a local church like ours to display your love and affection to the world. And so, Lord, I pray that to the watching world that people would know who you are and that we would know how much we love and have concern for one another because of what has been done in us in Christ. God, help us to do that for your glory and for your name. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.